Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black uh, hardback Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's not actually yours just to use today. It's yours to take home. Uh, we want to get a Bible in everyone's hand. So um, if you don't have one, please feel free to take that one. Uh, but we're in Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's also going to be up here on the screen um, if you want to look here. But uh, just to reorient us, we're in a series called the DNA of Cornerstone. Now, it's been brought to my attention that this isn't an exact replica of DNA, but uh, forgive us uh, for not being so accurate with that. But uh, in this series on the DNA of Cornerstone, we're just ba we're basically taking a look at our core values, um, and we've covered two so far. We have five as a church. We've covered two. We've covered gospel centrality and disciple making, and today we're looking at our third, which is community fostering. Uh, now, what we've done in this series, which is different than our past core value series, is we're really slowing down to dive deep into each of these values. And so this value of community fostering, we're actually going to spend three weeks on. Uh, this week, we're going to look at perseverance in community. Next week, we're going to look at the practices in community or of community. And then the following week, the prayer among community. And so we're going to spend three weeks in community fostering. That's where we're going to camp out for the next three weeks. At uh, this time, if you're in Hebrews 3 or you direct your attention at the screen, I invite you to stand with me. Uh, standing is your act of worship as we read and we receive God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 7 here, now the reading of God's word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unevil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of the unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, please be seated. And would you join me uh, in praying once more? Father, we're thankful for the time that you gather your people and you address us in your word. We're thankful, Father, for everyone who's gathered here. And we pray that your Holy Spirit give to them listening hearts, but not only listening hearts, uh, but hearts that are convicted and are pierced by your word. Father, because your word is not just something to know more about, but to be believed and digested and shaped and formed by. So God, would you do that to us? us into our communities, Lord. And I pray, Father, that as we give our attention, that you would free us from distraction, Lord, and free us from being distracting, that you alone, even in our focus, would receive worship and glory as we hear now your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a few weeks ago, I was really surprised because I gave an illustration on Top Gun, uh, that classic 80s movies, and uh, 
so few of you knew what Top Gun was. Uh, so let me give this another try. <clears throat> How many of you remember that classic 80s television sitcom, Cheers? No, no, okay, very few of you. Um, well, that show, um, you know, I'm not that old, but that show is one of, it's one of my all-time favorite shows, particularly the opening theme song, if you, if you know it. Uh, the chorus goes like this, uh, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see, the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Now, that opening lyric is so beautiful to me. You know, the show's title, Cheers, is, it comes from basically the setting of the show. It's set in a bar in Boston. Uh, and the whole premise is that it's a group of people who aren't anything alike. But despite all of that, they form this unique friend, these unique friendships and form a really unique community and love for one another. And I remember just being able to sense that as a kid, I would come home from after school and when all the other children put cartoons on the television, I put on cheers, and I would long and wait for the day when I could grow up and spend the rest of my life in a bar, hanging out <laughs> with Sam and Diane and Norm and Carla and Coach and, and, and the gang. And yeah, I was like seven years old at the time. Um, but even then, I just knew watching the show, oh, there's something going on here. There's a love. There's, there's a sense of, of joy and commitment among these people. Now, I think that's the test, actually, for, for the fact that if you look at a lot of these uh, different sources that usually list top 50 greatest shows of all times, uh, Cheers is often on those lists because it really strikes its chord in all of our hearts, which is we all want to know and we want to be known. We, want, we all want to know somebody, and we all want people to know us. And I read somewhere this quote. I think it's really illuminating, and I have it up here on the slides for us. It says, The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. You know, community fostering is a core value here at Cornerstone because God created us for community. But he not only put it into our hearts, this desire, he's also created and designed a community to fulfill a certain purpose when it's lived out amongst God's people. God uses community to spiritually minister to us. And so when I say we want to focus on community fostering, I don't mean we just want to create a space and a place where social relationships can be formed. Right? We hope that happens. We hope you guys are friends with one another. But that's not our priority. That's not our highest aim. You know, our highest aim is that a type of community is formed where you begin to flourish spiritually. And that's our vision. That's what we're working toward. And today's passage in Hebrews, it gives us a helpful picture of what God intends for community uh, to do among one another and for one another. And it helps us see why it's important not only to invest in community, but to be invested in by community. It's not only important for you to invest in a community, but to be invested in by a community. And you'll see that your perseverance in the faith is at stake. And so here is our gospel truth, our one-sentence summary today. God uses spiritual community to hold and preserve believers in his hand. 
God uses spiritual community to hold and preserve believers in his hand. And as we look at this truth, here are our two points today. The terrifying possibility of falling away. And second, the wonderful responsibility of the body. There is a terrifying possibility of falling away, but there is also a wonderful responsibility of the body. Let's keep that up here for a second. I know that there are some note takers who would appreciate this being up here. So we can keep this up here for a bit, but let's look at this first point. The terrifying possibility of falling away. The main point of this passage is boiled down in verse 12 with this warning. If you have a Bible, you can keep it open and look there. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, the very first words here, take care, brothers, is an urgent appeal because of the consequence of not taking care. The possibility of falling away from the living God, no longer walking with God because you've now turned your back on him. Now, in order to understand the the force of this appeal and why the author would even say such a thing, you need to know some of the context. And here's the context. Hebrews was written during a time when uh, the Christian church was under immense persecution. Christianity, this is about 30, 40 years after Jesus has resurrected and ascended. Now, Christianity is spreading like wildfire, and as it's spreading and increasing, so is persecution and pushback. And as a result of all this persecution, a lot of the Christians in the church, they began walking away from the faith because things just got too hard. So either they walked away, or secondly, some who were Jews and became Christians, they went back to Judaism because at that time, the Romans were comfortable with the Jews. Judaism was allowed and accepted, and so to be a Jew, you weren't very bothered. And so you have people leaving the church or people returning to Judaism, and the author is getting so alarmed, he's so concerned that he turns all of his pastoral attention and with pastoral concern writes this stern warning and urgent appeal. Take care, brothers, lest you have in you an evil, unbelieving heart, and you fall away from God. Now, what's really important here is he's saying, take care, brothers. He's not out on the street corners, right, on Sunday afternoon when people are skipping church going, take care, lest you fall away from God. He's speaking to the brothers, to those in the church, people like you, not the irreligious, immoral people out there, but the religious, moral people that are gathered in his church, and he's warning them. And this morning, I feel that because this is what the text is doing, I need to do the same with you to issue a similar kind of warning and plea. And it comes from a deep place of love and concern, but to warn you, to urge you, take care, because there is a possibility of you falling away. And this does come, it doesn't come from anger, it doesn't come from frustration, it comes from deep love and concern. Now just think about it this way. Parents, remember when your children first started learning to walk and all the dangers that that opened up in the world. You know, the world becomes infinitely more dangerous once your children begin to walk. Now the corners of tables and electric outlets and stairs and streets and and everything. So imagine for a second that you park the car and you take your kid out of his car seat and they start running toward moving cars. In a scenario like that, what do you do? What do you say? How many of you would, would beckon over to them, oh child, do not wander too far? <laughs> no, of course not, you rush over. You grab them, you urgently pull them in your arms, and in order to communicate how serious this situation is, what do you do? You raise your voice, because that communicates, this is serious. It's actually because of your deep love and concern that you, you, you say to them, 
You do not walk into the street by yourself. You have to hold my hand and you raise your voice to communicate the seriousness of the situation. What Hebrews is talking about is a serious matter. There are people in the church who believe they are saved and they are falling away from the living God. An urgent lesson requires an urgent warning. This is what we're reading about today because what the author of Hebrews is saying is falling away from God and not listening with this kind of urgency, it's not just a matter of, of um, the consequence is fatal, the consequence is eternal. Falling away from God forever. And in order to help the readers understand the gravity of what he's saying, he tells them this story, this story that's been used in Israel's history over and over again. And basically he recounts for them Psalm 95. So if, we look, if you looked at the passage, verses 7 to verse 11 uh, is a quote of a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was this reflection um, of a time when, when Israel, they were freed from their slavery in Egypt. They were out in the wilderness and they were wandering. They're on their way to Canaan, the promised land. But before they got there, before they arrived, they rebelled and they disobeyed God. And as a result, the first generation, they failed to enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. And the author is using that story, Psalm 95, he's quoting it, in order to warn his people of the consequences. So three times he warns them, three times he tells them the consequences. So if you have a Bible, uh, it's also up here at the screen, uh, I've written this out. Look at verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Then glance over at verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then again, in chapter 4, verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here's the warning. Don't harden your hearts. Why? Well, here's the consequence. It's so great. Look at verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then you look at chapter 4, verse 3, he writes again, As they swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And just two verses later, in verse 5, he writes, they, not, they shall not enter my rest. And the author is saying this. He's saying, guys, this story that I'm telling you, it's not just a series of unfortunate events that happened to people back then and there. It's a story that you need to learn from. It's a lesson you need to learn today because the same thing could happen to any one of you. Except the, the consequence is so much worse because they couldn't enter the physical rest of Canaan. But if you fall away from the living God because of a hardened heart, you will fail to enter the heavenly, eternal rest of God. You don't want to miss out on that, so listen carefully. That's what he's saying. And he tells the story. Actually, this story is told over and over again in Israel's history as a way of warning. Now, some of you may have done that to your children. Some of you children may remember your parents telling you stories over and over again, the same kind of stories to warn you. You know, when I was young, my mother was so concerned uh, that one day I would ride a motorcycle. I loved riding my bike as a kid. Surprisingly, I didn't want to be a pastor growing up. I wanted to be a BMX racer, and I loved riding my bike, and she thought, oh, one day he's going to get a motorcycle. So she would tell me this story over and over again as a warning. It's kind of a sad story, and it's kind of messed up she used it, but uh, there was somebody in our youth group, a, a girl in our youth group whose older brother had uh, passed away in a motorcycle accident. Um, but she would always, you know, say, well, first of all, he was in his uh, a lower 20s. He was a young guy. But she'd always say he was so responsible. But it was late at night and another car was speeding. And they were irresponsible and they hit him. 
And so when, we're, when we were driving down the street and I just looked at a motorcycle, she would tell me that story to sober me up, to awaken me again to the warning. And to be honest, a warning through a story told again and again, it leaves an effect, you know, so that 25 years later to this day, um, you know, the closest I've ever gotten to riding a motorcycle uh, was about a month ago uh, when I sat on a motorcycle for five seconds before I got so scared and I came right off of it. You know, warnings work if you listen well to them. The story of Israel is a warning passed on from generation to generation of God's people, and it's told even to this day, and it's warning us, but it'll only work if we listen well. Because think about this. This is really interesting what's happening here in the Bible. The writer of Hebrews, he recounts Psalm 95 for his congregation. So the, the author of Hebrews, he's most likely, we don't know who he is, but he's most likely a pastor, and he's preaching, and he's recounting Psalm 95 to his congregation in order to warn them of the terrifying possibility of falling away from God if they harden their hearts against them. So he's quoting Psalm 95 for that purpose. Do you know why Psalm 95 was written? Because the psalmist a thousand years before was warning the congregation of Israel of the terrifying possibility of falling away from God if they hardened their hearts against them. But Psalm 95 is based on these accounts of Israel's history that are recorded in the books of Exodus and Numbers. Right, Moses wrote down these events. Do you know why Moses wrote down these events? Because Moses was warning the congregation of the terrifying possibility of falling away from God if they hardened their hearts against him. Or so are you tracking with this? Right? Moses wrote the original incident to warn them. Psalm 95 is quoting Moses in order to warn them. Moses is quoting Psalm 95, which is quoting Exodus and Numbers to warn them. Today, I'm preaching on Hebrews, which is quoting Psalm 95, which is quoting Numbers and Exodus in order to warn you, warn you, the congregation, that there is a real possibility, a terrifying possibility of falling away from from the living God if you harden your hearts against them. And here's what's so terrifying about this. The Israelites, they had all of the great spiritual experiences. They saw God working. They saw him turn the Nile into blood. They saw him rain plagues upon this nation. They saw him open up the Red Sea. They saw him bring the Red Sea upon their enemies. They saw him provide manna and quail out of thin air. They saw him um, provide water from a rock. They saw him follow them around with a pillar of smoke and fire. They were circumcised. They received the law. They gathered together for corporate worship. And yet, look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? We need to pay attention and not fall asleep because this means something to us. Just because you're in the church and you attend church and you're involved in church, just because you had some amazing, great spiritual experiences or you're engaged very heavily in spiritual activity in the church does not eliminate the real possibility that with an unbelieving and evil heart, you can fall away from the living God. But I'm baptized. Well, they were circumcised. But I come to church. Well, they gathered for corporate worship. But I read the Bible, they memorized the law. But at the end of the day, verse 17 says Israel sinned. Verse 18 says they disobeyed. Verse 19 says they were filled with unbelief. Your past, previous spiritual experiences, no matter how great and formative they are, does not guarantee anything. They do not guarantee you will end your race well. You must persevere in faith. 
You see, you cannot coast along in a faith that you once professed years ago. Well, I said a prayer at a youth camp when I was 10. No, the scripture is saying you must continue in that faith day by day until the Lord calls you home. Every day you must take care to examine your faith. This passage demands it. Now, here's the thing. We are a Reformed Presbyterian Calvinistic church. We believe once saved, always saved. We truly believe that. We believe that those whom God predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8. We believe, as Ephesians, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that we are sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. Yes, the Bible says that, but you know what? The Bible is also not afraid to say right after that in 2 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 10, to say this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your elect calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. To be diligent in confirming what Christ guarantees for you in order that you don't fall away. The consequences are too great. To confirm, to daily keep an eye on, to keep a pulse on your faith, how are you doing? so that you don't have an unbelieving, evil heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, every few, few years, uh, all of us in here who drive have to go to the DMV to renew your driver's license. And when you get there, you uh, pull out your ticket number, and, and then the long wait begins. And there's always a battle, you know, because you're waiting forever. What the battle is, uh, will I get called first, or will Jesus come back first? I mean, it's, you're waiting forever. And I don't know about you, but here's what I realize when I wait. I do this thing. I don't, I don't know why, but um, let's say my ticket number is like 621. And then they'll go 598. And it's like 590, I'm 621, but then I'll look, I'll take out my number and I'll look at it and I'll look at the screen and I'll look and I'll look at the screen and I'll go, okay. And I put it down. And then they'll say the next number, 500, you know, 99. And I'll take it out and I'll go, 621, 599. What are you doing? You know your number. You know it's not coming anywhere soon, but what are you doing? You're being diligent in confirming <laughs> your calling. <laughs> but isn't that true? Why do you do that? Because at one point, you're 621, they're gonna to get to 619. They're gonna to get to 620, and if you're not checking, what are you gonna do? You're gonna to go to the bathroom. You're gonna go take a phone call. And then you're gonna come back, and you're gonna look up, and it's gonna say 622, and you're gonna go, wait, 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 wait. What happened? You weren't diligent in confirming your calling. In the same way, you may believe Jesus died for your sins and he's given you eternal life. That's true. But you must also take care lest your heart become hardened. You must keep rehearsing the good news of the gospel to yourself. To keep an eye out on your faith. To be present and ready when God calls your number. And that's why scripture begins. Take care, brothers. Look out. Be on guard. Heed the warning. Learn the lesson from the previous generations. Because there is a real and terrifying possibility of falling away from the living God. Let's pray. <laughs> well, if we ended there, that would be the most awful message in history. <coughs> because to leave with that kind of uncertainty, that would be unnerving and anxiety stricken. It's interesting because obviously God doesn't leave the passage here. Now, we know, and if you're a good Calvinist, you go, well, you know, God comforts us with his promise. 
And you would expect God to comfort you with a promise of perseverance. And what I mean by that is, the way I would write this passage, you know, the way I would write it, the, the AKV, the Andrew Kim version, would be, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving spirit leading you to fall away from the living God. And then, here comes God's comfort. But, don't worry, because God will not let you go. And that's what we expect. That's the comfort we want. But if you look at verse 13, that's not the comfort the scriptures give. And it's very fascinating that the author writes something else instead, because he does give us God's comfort, but the God's comfort does not come in the form of a promise. God's comfort comes in the form of a command. Because his comfort comes through community. It comes through the responsibility of the community. How am I comforting you? How am I going to get you, you know, now I've just kind of scared you and woken you up. How am I going to comfort you? And then he says, be in a community that exhorts one another every day. And this leads to our second point, the wonderful responsibility of the body. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How does God comfort the anxious and uncertain believer who is terrified of the possibility, I may fall away from the living God? And the author says, you need to be in a community that exhorts you and encourages you daily. God gives this responsibility to the community because we, the community of God, are part of God's plan to get each other to the finish line. Yes, it's true. He will persevere us. He will preserve us. But he'll do it through the community that you're surrounded in. He'll use the community. You know, as a church, Reformed, believing in Reformed theology, we, we believe in a doctrine that they call the perseverance of saints. Beautiful doctrine. Perseverance of saints. The saints of God, they will persevere into the end. And this is not just something we want to believe in. This is something that the scriptures teach. And one of my favorite passages uh, is what Jesus says in John chapter 10. And let me read it for us. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Just leave that up here for a second. You have to love the imagery Jesus employs. He's so illustrative. Nobody will snatch them out of my Father's hands. You know, you know how you can really understand, come to understand this passage? Here's an exercise. Do this after service. After service, on the way down to the fellowship hall, which means first, stick around for fellowship. Second, as you're heading down, there's a welcome table with some mints. Grab a mint. And in that fellowship time, go to one of the children of the church and dare them. And if they're too cool to play with you, double dare them to take that mint from your hand. So I dare you. I don't think you could take this mint from my hand. And then watch how cute they are as they struggle and toil with all their might and strength to pry that candy loose from your hand. Look at their tremendous effort that they are exerting to take from your grip what you so easily hold in your hand. And when you see that, you understand what Jesus means when he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God promises that he will never loosen his grip over you if you are truly his. 
He will indeed hold you until the very end. So yes, there is a terrible, frightening reality, the possibility of falling away from the living God if you harden your hearts. But there's this wonderful promise that God will keep you firm in his grip and in his hand. But here's the question. How will he do that? How will he actually hold you in his hand? He will use other believers in community. In fact, when you're going, well, I don't sense God's hand around me, you know how you see God's hand around you? It's the hand of the body of Christ. The persevering hand. You know, God works often in these remarkably ordinary ways. You are part of God's plan to hold and preserve each other until the very end. That's a wonderful responsibility, but it's a weighty responsibility. And he says, encourage one another and exhort one another in order to keep one another from eventually rejecting him. This is kind of amazing. This is the vision of the kind of community we want to form here. Not a social community, but a spiritual community. Now, what does that look like? What does that actually look like? You know, the word says here in Hebrews 13, or chapter uh, four, 3, verse 13, it says, exhort one another. That ex- word exhort also means encourage. But when we think encourage, often we think something like a nice verbal pats on the back. You know, words of affirmation, uh, very shallow, superficial compliments. That's not what encouragement means here. Right? Because, because those things are nice, they're nice to hear, but they won't ever keep a heart from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Rather, the exhortations and the encouragements that need to combat against us possibly falling away, they need to be against the deceitfulness of sin. What makes our heart hardened? The Bible says deceitfulness of sin. Because the reality is, like left to ourselves, we are so prone to fall into the deceitfulness of sin. Let me just read a few Bible passages for us. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. What's deceitful? The heart is. Ephesians 4 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 1 Timothy 4 says, In in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Why will you be tempted to have a hardened heart by the deceitfulness of sin? Because your heart is deceitful, you have deceitful desires, there are deceitful spirits. We are bombarded with deceitfulness in a variety of ways. So in order to fight against the deceitfulness that hardens our hearts, we need to have God's truth. But if deceitfulness comes to us in a variety of ways, that means truth needs to come to us in a variety of ways. And this is where your community is so vitally important because they need to speak truth into your life to counteract the deceitfulness that you're surrounded with. And what does that look like? When you're deceived to believe that certain actions or attitudes that you have and possess aren't that bad, We need the truth from members in our community to help us see, no, you are lessening that. That is still sin, no matter how you dress it up and disguise it. When we're deceived to pretend that we are wiser and better than God, we need the truth from members in our community to rebuke us for our pride and our arrogance. When we're deceived to forget that God is good because the circumstances of our lives are so bad, we need the truth from God's members in our community to remind us that God is working all things for our good, especially when he's working behind the scenes. 
when we're deceived to think that our guilt is too great for God's grace. We need the truth from members in our community to exhort us that nothing is beyond what Jesus can and will cover with his forgiveness. When we're deceived to convince ourselves that running away or hiding our shame from God is safer than bringing them to him, we need the truth of our community to encourage us that God is the better hiding place and the safer refuge for our weary souls. When we're deceived to be self-sufficient and independent and that I can handle all of my difficult issues and problems on my, own, on my own, we need the truth of God's community to pursue us and share burdens together. What we need is truthful gospel exhortation and encouragement to combat against the deceitfulness of sin. Because when we're left to its lies on our own, that's when our hearts get hardened. And it's so easy for our hearts to get hardened. You know, you know by now that I'm a very visual person. When I read the Bible, I just have things just pop into my head. And when I read this, the very first thought was, uh, I pictured just a nice fondue fountain <laughs> of cheese overflowing with a steady stream of glistening liquid gold. I love fondue. <laughs> now, the thing about fondue is you must keep it constantly warm in a warm temperature in order to keep the cheese smooth and creamy so you can dip just a nice, piece, a nice fresh baguette. <laughs> but as soon as you turn off that heat, as soon as you remove the warmth from it, then the cheese begins to harden. And then it becomes clumpy. And not long after that, it returns back to what it was, a block of cheese. But this time, it's more disfigured and out of shape than when you melted it in the first place. You see, the heart is not very different. Left on our own, our hearts run the risk of not only becoming hardened, but even more disfigured and out of shape than when it was at first. And it's in those moments, that's when people fall away from the Lord. That's why people fall away from the Lord. And that's why the author is so wise to say, exhort one another every day. He's saying, apply the constant, regular heat of gospel truth spoken into people's hearts so it doesn't remain hard, it doesn't get hard, but remains soft and tender. This is the responsibility of community, how God chooses to use other believers in his people's lives. It's a quite a beautiful scene, speaking warm gospel truths to keep the heart soft so it's never hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, lest it be evil and unbelieving and we fall away from the living God. And let me just address this as a church for a second. Our church, we're growing we are, you guys, not we, you guys are killing it, are nailing community. I think you're absolutely knocking it out of the ballpark. I mean, if, if I had gold stars, I would give each one of you one. <laughs> I'd give you two. And I'm, I'm, I'm so proud, you know, I mean, like half of you are old, way older than me and half of you are way younger than me, but I do feel like a parent sometimes. <laughs> I'm so proud of our church. I am so proud of the way that we welcome others and that we include others and invite others. I, I am so proud that we are, I really believe this, a tangible expression of the embrace of God to people who walk in our doors. And I see it and others experience it and then many more tell me about it. Praise God. But if we stop there, then we're gonna be 
the greatest, or as young people say, the nastiest. That's a good thing, by the way. A great social community. If we, stop, if, if we are really able to open up our arms and embrace people in, invite them over that, we will be an awesome social community. And we will have failed to do what we are called to do. Because it's not about social community, it's about spiritual community. Because, yes, we want to be the embrace of God to everyone who comes into our doors, but we also want to be the hand of God by which people feel and experience how God is holding us to and for himself. And that will only happen when we are involved in what Hebrews 3 is laying out for us, speaking and exhorting one another daily with warm gospel truths that prevent the heart from being hardened. It's going to lead to two implications that you need to consider and you need to respond to. The first is this. You must involve yourself in a community. Involve yourself in a community. You need to be in a community where you can receive the ministry of others by being encouraged and exhorted regularly. You need to give others permission to keep your heart from the deceitfulness of sin. You, you need to be willing. You need to be vulnerable. You actually need to invite others to be God's hand in your life because you cannot do this alone. Part of the way that you take care, that you heed the warning, is by having others speak into your lives. Because who knows? God may use somebody in your life to keep you from falling away when you're right on the verge of giving up and tipping over. Be involved in a community. But here's the second thing. Because some of you are. Second is invest yourself into a community. Don't just be in a community where you are ministered to by the encouragement of others. Be in a community where you minister to others through encouragement and daily exhortation. And by invest, I don't just mean invest in regular attendance and participation, but more than that, invest in the people. Be God's hand in their lives. Keep their hearts from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because who knows, God may use you to keep another person from falling away and use you to draw them closer to himself. And I can tell you this, because if you're not invested in community, if you're not speaking gospel truths to anybody, you won't be used in this way. I guarantee it. So I urge you, find a community, not only to be involved in where you can be ministered to, but be invested in where you can minister to others. This, this is God's plan for your spiritual good. And at our church, of course, that's the best way to experience that is community groups. But of course, there are so many other ways through natural relationships, meeting with a group of guys, a group of women uh, regularly to do such things, weekly phone calls, text messages. There are all sorts of ways. I encourage you to pursue them. But I can't end here because the call for us to be a church that fosters this kind of community can only be true uh, if we are first a church that's centered on the gospel. Now, why do I bring this up? Oh, here he goes, you know, I have a friend who calls this part of the sermon, he calls it the gospel blackout. When the pastor just at the end says, okay, he needs to talk about the gospel, so let's th throw that in there. Oh no, it's much more than that. Because the only way that community fostering will be woven into our DNA is if gospel centrality is woven into our DNA. So here's how it makes a difference. The gospel assures us that Jesus delivered us from, Jesus delivered us from the ultimate death of sin, so he will surely deliver us from the daily deceitfulness of sin. 
Jesus promises that he will finally and fully deliver us, making sure that we reach the end. Jesus guarantees that we will reach the end through his life and his death. Because here's what you need to know. We are just like Israel in Psalm 95. Right? Living our lives, we are wandering in the wilderness and the desert. And just like Israel, while we are waiting for God to take us where he's called us, in the meantime, we constantly sin and rebel. We're masters at it. In fact, we're just like Israel because we suffer from the same spiritual amnesia. We forget over and over again what God has done for us and what he saved us from. And then just like Israel, we grumble and we complain and we disobey and we disbelieve. And in the end, all of our actions disqualify us ever for entering God's heavenly rest. But then the gospel comes in and ensures us that this good news that Jesus came to this earth and he lived his life among us in a type of wilderness wandering himself. Jesus was a sojourner far away from his home that he left in order to come get us. And that Jesus experienced wilderness wandering just like us except for one important difference. In his time away from his home, here on this earth, he succeeded in every place that we failed, and he obeyed in every way that we disobeyed. Jesus alone is the only person who ever earned, deserved to enter the promised land of Canaan, not us. And yet the reward for his perfect life and obedience his end wasn't to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey, but to be crucified on a cross where his blood flowed down for us. And it's there by taking our place, Jesus experienced the wrath and punishment that we deserved in order that we might enter into that heavenly rest that he earned. And he gives this to us by his grace. And he's saying, this is all I did for you. And he did this at such a precious cost. He's going to assure us that all those who have faith in him, all those who receive and rest upon him alone, they will reach that finish line. He promises, to, he promises this to you and to me. And what does he do? He gives us the gift of spiritual community so that we become the visible expression of God's hand that holds one another and preserves one another until the end when we see him face to face. This is good news. The gospel gives all these kind of promises. You will finish the race. He assures it and he seals it with his body and his blood. But you know what? The gospel does more than just give you promises. The gospel gives us a motivation. Here's how. Because the gospel reminds us that we have a Savior who is too selfless to worry only about himself. So then how can his followers be so selfish that we worry only about ourselves? Jesus was so concerned with bringing his people to the finish line. How can we be content with just getting ourselves there? But instead, we have a Savior who moved toward me, so I will move toward others. I have a Savior who committed himself to me, and so I will commit myself to others. I have a Savior who invested in me with blood, sweat, and tears. I will invest in others with blood, sweat, and tears. When was the last time you spiritually encouraged somebody? When was the last time that you spoke warm gospel truths and promises into somebody else's life? And at this point, some of you can't remember. Some of you can remember. But for those of you who can remember, let me ask you this. Is that a regular practice or an occasional thing? 
Would the people you're in community with, would they come to expect you to speak gospel truths into their lives? Or would they be surprised and go, whoa, where's this coming from if you sat down and began encouraging them spiritually? Each one of you, you are a part of God's plan to keep one another from falling away from him. But if you are not engaged in this kind of regular daily practice of spiritually encouraging and exhorting one another, then I really believe you need to repent and recommit yourself to the Lord and to others. God has given each one of us a wonderful responsibility, and we need to plunge deeper into the gospel to reorient our priorities and become what he desires us to be. You know, this is the kind of community we want to be here at Cornerstone. This is what we want others to experience. This is what we want to experience. To be able to look out at others and see each one of you as the hand of God in our lives. The way in which God is holding us and preserving us. You know, spiritual community is really meant to be this. It's the visible reminder that he will hold you fast. When all else fails, and when the tempter prevails, our community is God's reminder. I will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father, your word comes to us Uh, As it so often does, later in Hebrews 4, you tell us that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that you pierce to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and you discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your word does that to us. It warns us. It wakes us up of the reality that we need to persevere. But then it comforts us for reminding us that you have given to us, one, your promise to hold us into the end. And second, your people who are the hands of your body that will see us through. And I pray, God, that at Cornerstone, you would help us to experience that kind of community that we would aim toward, that we would strive toward, and we would contribute toward such a vision so that we would be the reminders in each other's lives. He will hold you fast. Oh God, transform us into this kind of church. Do so by your gospel, that we would live in the awareness of the Savior who came after us, invested in us, involved his life in ours, and having been so moved and convicted and transformed, that we would do the same and be the same unto others. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear now the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Friends, hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Would you go in peace?